Hello! Welcome to the Jeff Bezos' Midlife Crisis edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week, in which Jeff Bezos dropped $165 million on a Pierre Terre in Los Angeles. And what else happened? Oh, there's a major Fed chair brouhaha going on in Washington. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about antitrust issues, not only as pertaining to telecoms, but also as pertaining to technology. We're going to talk about Jedi. If you don't know what Jedi is, you're about to find out, but it also involves big tech and the power thereof. And if you are a Slate Plus member, can I just say you're in for a treat this week because there is a truly magnificent Emily Peck rant. So all I have to do now is just introduce ourselves. My name is Felix Salmon of Axios. Emily Peck, you are here from HuffPost. Hello. Anna Shemansky, you are here from Breaking Views. Hello. And we are going to be talking about all manner of techno-awesome things coming up on Slate Money. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So let's talk about the hearing that happened on Thursday in the Senate in front of the Banking Committee. Uh, pretty much 50-50 Republicans and Democrats. But I watched a bunch of it and it some of them were nice. But most of them on both sides were not nice to Judy Shelton, who was one of the two nominees sitting there. And then there was this other guy sitting to her left who basically everyone ignored because they were like, OK, you're, he's a, not so bad. <laughs> you're, you're a respected Fed economist. You've been at the Fed for years. Everyone kind of understands that you're qualified. So why are you even here? Right. And these are Trump nominees for the Federal Reserve, to be clear. And what Trump has done when he's nominated people to the Federal Reserve is they really have fallen into two buckets. He's Sometimes he just nominates the obvious technocrat who is good at their job. And probably Jay Powell would fall into that bucket, but so would like Lael Brainerd and various other people who like sailed through their nominations had no problem. And then... Yeah. I mean, I think we look at kind of early Trump, it was still kind of normal. And now we're moving a little bit into crazy Trump. But but the point is that even with these two nominations, he's got one of each. Yes. And, that's, ha- and that's true. Yeah. The um, Was it Chris Waller? Yeah. It? So Chris Waller is, he's from the St. Louis Fed. Yeah. Um, he's always been on the dovish side. Um, he's, he's buddies, I believe, with Larry Kudlow. And they're both into the idea right now that they can keep, un- unemployment can go still much lower and it won't affect inflation. So, you know, this is a right. debate that's happening in the Federal Reserve. And and basically every time that the Fed has worried that unemployment has reached as low as it can go before inflation kicks in, um, they've they've said like, well, let's try and see what happens if it goes even lower. And then it goes even lower and then inflation doesn't turn up. So, so it's an interesting debate in the central banking community. And there's lots of talk about this thing called the Phillips curve. And Chris Waller is right in that debate, and he can add useful perspective to the Fed board in terms of that debate. And probably his conclusions are aligned with what Donald Trump would want them to be, which is, 
you can cut rates more and that's fine. But ultimately, he's a relatively professional central banker and he'll be fine. Yeah. The reason Judy Shelton is so worrying to people, I would say, is twofold. One is some of the things she said in the past, specifically being a big fan of the gold standard, believing that the Fed just shouldn't exist at all, not believing in deposit insurance. And not just... just Yeah. Deposit insurance. (laughs) Like FDR, deposit insurance, like the assurance that I have that the money in the bank will be there tomorrow because I know that the federal government will make me whole if I lose the money in my bank account. Who? I was really surprised that a human person that is nominated for such um, an influential position. I mean, I know Goldbug is crazy too, but for some reason, I cannot stop thinking about that this woman wants to get rid of the FDIC. So I, it's, I, I am so blown away by that. This is this is part and parcel. <laughs> this is you not just, by the way, twofold point. To, to be clear, this is not just something that she wrote once. She this is something which she built her entire career around, which is basically, and this is not unique to Judy Shelton. This is a very, very standard, like hard libertarian view of monetary policy, that the federal government should not be involved in monetary policy, that we should just outsource the whole thing to a lump of gold, and that um, banks banks should, you know, rise and fall on their own merits, and they shouldn't be backstopped by the federal government because that's the federal government, like, interfering in private commerce. And, like, the, the, the crazy sort of like Rand Paul wing of the Republican Party has always had an affinity for this kind of thinking. It has never been remotely mainstream and it is entirely counter to really the existence of the Fed. Yes. Yeah. And and I would say what that's disturbing, but I would argue that what's even more disturbing is her partisanship, is the fact that she, as you said, Felix, built her career on this. And then when she it became clear that she was perhaps more aligned with Trump, that he was maybe going to appoint her. Now, all of a sudden, she's a dove. And and right, so, yeah, so that, when Obama was president, yeah, she right. was out there saying that the Fed should raise rates and right. um, it was ruining the economy. And now with Trump president, she wants the Fed to lower rates. And it's not just that she wants the Fed to lower rates. She also seemingly wants the Fed to start getting in charge of the dollar. Yeah. In a way that like has historically been the remit of the Treasury Department rather than the Fed. And she's like, the Fed should lower rates specifically to weaken the dollar so that, that we can enter this currency war and export more. And this is a very, very Trumpist view. And what is absolutely clear is that she has effectively jettisoned everything that she has ever said in the past after going to work for Trump on the Trump campaign in 2016. and is now a mouthpiece for whatever Trump thinks this week. And she would certainly just vote and act on the Fed board in accordance with what Trump wanted, rather than in accordance with whatever wingnut libertarian ideals she held in the past. would actually not... So I don't think it's so bad to keep rates low and keep juicing the economy and see how low you can get unemployment so, for now i guess the issue is trump once trump leaves well the issue is twofold as one would say <laughs> first that she if if trump gets reelected i think as felix has pointed out that she could be um put in charge of the whole thing she could be the next chair the next chair bad and then second if trump gets voted out and she stays there then she and it's a democrat who's president she could flip flop again 
and, you know, work to put the brakes on the economy instead of juicing it. And, the, and, biggest, yeah. the biggest issue is that she if she is on there and especially if she is the chair, that starts to call into question the independence. It doesn't of call in. If she is the chair, there is no Fed independence. Well, there's the rest of the board. of governors. I mean, it's not just I mean, her. If she is the chair. No, I'm going to just come out and say if she is the chair, then. Well, the only way that she becomes the chair is if Trump is president. Right. So if she is the chair and Trump is president, there is no Fed independence. The chair of the Fed just does the bidding of Donald Trump. And, you know, maybe she has difficulty, you know, getting a majority of the votes on the Fed board, although at that point, who knows, you know, right. who's on the Fed board. But the fact is the multi-decade history of Fed independence has at that point come to an end. Yeah. And, and this is this is incredibly dangerous. Like that to me, the reason why I think this actually won't happen is because of how dangerous that is. Having an independent central bank is so important for market participants to have faith in the dollar, to have faith in our debt, to have faith in the ability of our government to like have a functioning economy. It is so important. And when you look at times when the Fed independent or when other countries have had their independence of their central banks questioned or clearly shown to not be the case, the consequences are devastating. And we saw that even in the United States, you know, with Arthur Burns, you know, when Fed independence goes, that's harmful. And what was super interesting in the hearing was at one point, Christopher Waller actually managed to get a word in edgewise. And he was talking about the ability of the Fed to keep on, you know, to keep inflation under control, even when unemployment is very low and you have a sort of full employment situation. And he was like, you know why we can do that? It's because no one expects inflation and no one expects inflation because everyone believes in Fed independence right. and everyone trusts the Fed. And so long as people trust the Fed, no one's going to be like raising prices in expectation of inflation. Inflation to a large degree is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like the the dynamics of inflation are that people ask for wage increases or increase their prices because they think that there's inflation out there and they need to keep up with it. And so long as you don't think that inflation is out there, so long as you trust the Fed to keep inflation under control, inflation just doesn't appear. Well, and also because, I mean, to be fair, if, also if you if you had a, if you were just all of a sudden started printing money and you were printing money far in excess of increases in the productive capacity of the economy, in theory, you would cause inflation, right? So that that is why we have an independent central bank so that governments won't do that. Because historically, not necessarily always in the United States, although it can be in many other countries, when countries want to print money so that they can spend more, and then they degrade the value of the money. And this is the dynamics of it. I mean, so, so yeah, just to, to be clear here, right now, Donald Trump is on a bit of a spending spree. Uh, well, not a spending spree, but certainly like a fiscal stimulus spree. He, he cut taxes a lot. And, and the way he's funding that fiscal stimulus is by borrowing money in the market and by issuing treasury bonds. It is conceivable, if you lost the independent central bank, that he could just print money instead. Instead of, instead of going out and borrowing money from investors, he would just say, oh, you know, magic. I'm going to magic a trillion dollars of, you know, new money out of thin air because you can do that when you have control of the printing presses. And that, you know, as, as Anna says, is super dangerous on an economic level. 
you know, do I worry that the Fed would be cut, would lose so much independence that they would go that far? Probably not, but you never know. No, I mean, and I agree with you. I'm not saying that I think that is my base case. I'm just saying that that is the danger. Like when people say, well, like, why does it matter if we have an independent Fed? That is one of the reasons. The other reason is because let's say all of a sudden inflation, for whatever reason, does start to move up. And then if we do not have an independent Fed, they may be much less apt to actually act because the president will be like, no, if you raise rates, you're going to hurt the economy. And I don't want to do that. So you need that's what the classic idea of what, what do central bankers do? They take away the punch bowl. Nobody likes the person who takes away the punch bowl. So they can't be a political but body. The, 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 the bigger picture here is that everything has become politicized. The Supreme Court is politicized, which, you know, is meant to be like this third branch of government, but it's become just R versus D in the way that it was never meant to. Um, you know, the Senate was never really meant to be an R versus D body, but it has now become that. And The Department of Justice, I think, is a really apt example. And the Department week. of Justice, as yeah. we know, is happening this week. And if the Fed becomes politicized, if you put party political hacks onto the Fed, such as Judy Shelton or Stephen Moore or Herman Cain, they're votes are going to be very, very simple and very, very predictable, which is a simple if then. If there's a Democrat in the White House, I want to raise rates. If there's a Republican in the White House, I want to cut rates. And the Fed, if you have that, then what you wind up with is a Fed whose basic job is to reelect Republican presidents and to make the economy crap so that Democratic presidents wind up getting kicked out. You know, conceivably, it would be possible. I, I actually don't believe that there's anyone who would vote the other way, like ha be a, like a Democratic Party hack and always vote for to, to raise rates under a Republican president. I, I can't think of any human being who would act that way. But like, but just the but, existence but, of but the possibility <laughs> of the possibility of the Fed board breaking along R versus D lines rather than across like Hawk versus Dove lines is is so terrifying to any kind of economist that they just want to prevent that. And I think that is ultimately why Judy Shelton is going to withdraw her nomination. Yes. But she has got much further than the previous party hacks who who um, Trump nominated. And the reason why they pulled out um, Kane and more previously was actually not because they were party hacks, at least right. on the face of it, but it was because they had like, you know, personal life problems. And this is, I actually think what's interesting is that because they had some kind of like Me Too issues, it, that was a kind of a fig leaf that could be used. So they weren't, didn't have to actually talk about the kind of independence issue or their, their actual beliefs. Whereas with Shelton, you don't have that. So then you really do have to say, we are not nominating her because if, you know, we don't, we think her ideas are not within the mainstream and we do not think she would uphold the independence of the Fed. And by doing that, they now are going to raise the ire of Donald Trump, which obviously people don't want to do. I guess the question is, when people are listening to this episode, is she still hanging around <laughs> or not? Um, also, she did say something insane about she compared um, some frauds, financial fraudster to Rosa Parks because of his audacity. Because yeah, he wanted to. <laughs> he tried to print his own currency, and he went to jail. And again, in this like bonkers libertarian worldview, everyone should be able to print their own currency. The federal government shouldn't have a monopoly on printing currency. And so she's like, "This man is the Rosa Parks of monetary policy," and that went down the bout as yeah. well as you would imagine. <laughs> so we have that. Um, 
and I guess what I was going to say is it's interesting that um, Moore and Kane, like everything is partisan. Congress, the Senate will do whatever the president wants now. DOJ is totally seems seems to be corrupt at this point. Bill Barr just does whatever Trump wants and is only upset if Trump actually tweets about it. So it makes it harder to do what Trump wants. And the court is partisan, like like Felix said. Um, but there's seems to be a slight line in the sand for uh, financial policy. Like what's his name? The guy with the gloves and the the wife that Instagram. Steve Mnuchin. Steve Mnuchin's still around and he's like kind of a, Mnuchin, he's like on the normal side of well, things. Okay, so Mnuchin is a super say. interesting one, right? Is that like, on the one hand, he is the most reliable Trump surrogate and puppet. Like he will happily appear in front of television cameras and defend, you know, Trump Whatever. statements yes. in after Charlotte, Charlottesville <laughs> or building walls mm-hmm. or pulling troops out of Syria or whatever, like, crazy thing Trump woke up this morning and wanted to do. Mnuchin can be relied upon to completely think that it's the most genius thing he's ever heard in his life. And this has made him slightly less credible in financial markets. But the one thing you are right about is that somehow... Treasury itself doesn't seem to have become that politicized. Exactly. This is what I'm saying. There is some kind of you can do a lot in American politics and people don't care. But if you you just don't mess with like the rich people's system or the economic system to be to be generous, the economic system, that's like the line you can't. Right. Cross. And I think and I think you're right about that. And I think you're right about that in almost any kind of president. You can mess with women, you can mess with minorities, you can mess with it's horrible to say, but yes, you can I mean, support like, racist, you can you can do pretty much anything but like don't mess with the money. Yeah. No, I mean I I think you're right. I mean I I I think you're right, you know, and to me that's why I I just have a very hard time imagining Donald Trump actually putting people like Shelton or others because I think the market reaction would be so negative. And yet he did. He did nominate her. and he Because there nom- hasn't been a reaction yet. But I think that's also because no one thinks it's really going to happen. But maybe it will. I feel like anything goes now in like this post-impeachment well, it also, era. It's like everyone seems to have given up a little bit. It also depends on if she's just like one of the members or if she's the chair. I think that's a big mm-hmm. difference. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is a big difference. But, the, but let's not kid ourselves that if she is in those Fed board meetings... She will immediately turn around and tell Donald Trump and Larry Kudlow exactly what happened in those meetings. It's true. But like just to maybe like last thing I'll say. It's yeah. It's not. <laughs> Emily is making faces here. Yeah, no, it's really bad. And like maybe just last thing here. Like I don't want to try to say that the Fed is in no way political or that there's not. There's always been political pressure on the Fed. But this this would be different. This, you know, this yeah. would really, really be different. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a, a conceptual and quite easy to understand difference between the Fed is an independent agency which is subject to political pressure on the one hand right. versus the poli- the Fed is a political yes. agency on the other. And that's where we none of us want to go. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet. And it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisitions like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year 
by starting your morning with the best one yet every weekday. Follow the best one yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Mergers, M&A, one of those things which used to be a big deal in the financial markets and um, maybe will be, a, will be again. <laughs> Um, the big news this week, well, a couple of big news is this week, um, one of which was the FTC coming out and saying, you know, all those mergers that big tech has done over the past 15 years, we're going to go back retroactively and look at them all and say, well, maybe Facebook shouldn't have been allowed to buy Instagram after all, which is so mind blowing. And I, I can't imagine where that's going to end up. And I'm fascinated to know where, where you guys think that's going to wind up. Meanwhile over the objections of various state attorney generals, the courts ruled in favor of T-Mobile being able to merge with Sprint and thereby reducing competition in the you know, cell phone space. Emily, what's your take on all this? It's about time the FTC woke up and paid attention to the tech mergers. So even though they're doing it too late and it's a little weird and maybe it goes nowhere, someone had to start thinking about what antitrust looks like in 2020. Some regulators did. I mean, other people have been thinking about it for a long time. And I guess the in, Facebook, Instagram or um, Amazon, Whole Foods, stuff like that, they weren't traditionally the kinds of things to get antitrust attention because, you know, it's not like Standard Oil owning all the, the it, stuff. It was hard to prove a consumer harm. Hard to Thank you. Hard to prove consumer harm. And they're using the Bork doctrine. And if there's no consumer harm, then it's a good thing. So they kind of like ignored this while everyone, you know, economists and others have been saying like, you can't ignore this. These things are getting too powerful. You nuts. And so finally, it seems like people are starting to pay attention and think about what monopolies and what antitrust looks like in and 2020. And I love, I so kind of good. love the idea of the FTC going back retroactively and saying, you know what, Google should not have been allowed to buy YouTube. Now, YouTube is totally integrated mm -hmm. technologically and managerially into Google. It's a part of Google. It's not a separate company in any way, shape, or form. When Google bought YouTube, they weren't like, we will operate it as at arm's length and it will have its own piano. No, they, you know, they are using all of the data from YouTube, as Ed Lee talked about last week, to inform their entire business. Um, and that is giving them a huge competitive advantage internationally. Um, and it is easy to with hindsight, look at a merger like that or look at Facebook buying Instagram and say, yeah, like that's given you an enormous amount of power and probably too much power. And we would be better off if you hadn't been able to do it. What's funny, but, yeah, but, I, but then what do you do? Right. Because and I think that that's important because I don't think this exercise is in any way designed at this point to 
undo these mergers. I think this is more an informational exercise yeah. of looking back. But I, I do think, obviously, if you look back and you say, well, <laughs> many of these things were mistakes. Now, number one, that's obviously going to affect what happens moving forward. And number two, then it does raise the question, OK, well, if you can prove now that there is some type of harm that we didn't see before, does that mean then you do have to act? I mean, I think people are thinking about it. We have some of the Democratic candidates talking about breaking up some of these companies. We have David Cicilline's, you know, subcommittee on antitrust having hearings about Amazon where small businesses come in and they're like, this is how Amazon destroyed my small business. Um, and I think there's like conversations at least about in Amazon's case, like um, separating the platform from the the vendors, right? Because that's the issue. The antitrust issue with Amazon is that it, it control it controls both where you sell the stuff and the stuff. That's so, yeah. Sold. So, so this is Elizabeth Warren's big thing about Amazon, which is that on the one hand, anyone can sell on Amazon, but on the other hand, Amazon sells on Amazon and Amazon is giving itself an unfair advantage versus everybody else, um, which is probably fair, but, but it it's... doesn't, it doesn't, it isn't as compelling to me as something like, like, but it's completely stifling Instagram to any... or YouTube. Well, yeah, but it is really stifling to any innovation or new business because not only is it like well, is it? I mean, do we have actual evidence of that? There has been some testimony in the in the hearings where it's like some company has some device that they've invented. Like I think one example was um, you know those thingamajiggies you put on the back of your phone, the pop up thingamajiggies, the pop up thingamajiggies, yes. Um, so and like, then Amazon started selling pop up thingamajiggies, and the thingamajiggy company started losing sales. Yeah, I've, I mean, Allbirds is the classic example of this, right? Is that they started making their sneakers and then Amazon has a knockoff. Right. I mean, that happens all the time in the real world, too. But I think what's interesting with Amazon, and we can turn back to Facebook and Instagram and everything, is that they have control over the data. They like really have granular, deep knowledge of, of how these companies operate, who buys the stuff. And, and, and they ha they know more about the market, I think, than just your average. Like, yeah. I mean, I think that that's actually a, swoop in. A, a decent point that it does make it a little different than the normal world is that they have so much information on their competition in a way that would be very hard and kind of an yeah, analog. Um, probably illegal. Yeah. <laughs> but but also this like as retail becomes increasingly digital, this is going to become a bigger and bigger issue. Right now, it's about 10% of retail sales are online, mm -hmm. which means that 90% of retail sales are not online and you can run a small business without relying on online sales. But at the same time, at, you know, if it, it is clear that if you're starting an online business right now, you're going to want to be primarily online. That's where the big money is. You know, that's how Kylie Jenner becomes a billionaire. And if you're going to be selling things online, then you are going to be reliant on Amazon or else you are going to have to make a very, very consequential decision to avoid Amazon. And either way, you're, like Amazon is the elephant in the room. And so either you just say, and, and by the way, if you avoid Amazon, if you decide that you're not going to sell on Amazon, then what that forces you to do is to run straight into the arms of Instagram. That's the only other way to sell things online is to just spend a huge amount of money on Instagram ads, um, which works. And, you know, people can make a lot of money by selling things on Instagram. But either way, either you wind up being reliant on Amazon or you're reliant on Facebook. And it doesn't feel like a – I feel like the internet – in some, because I'm old and I remember when the internet wasn't controlled by big trillion dollar companies, 
the EU ought to be able to just go onto the internet and sell things on the internet without relying on Amazon and Facebook. Right. So that gets us back to, I guess, these antitrust probes. Um, should we touch back on Sprint and T-Mobile? Yes. Like, do we care that there'll be fewer cell phone companies? Honestly, was Sprint a good cell phone company? No, then no. that's the whole, no, but that's the whole point. Sprint's what Sprint would have died anyway. Yeah. I honestly think this was completely ruled correctly. Sprint would have died anyway. So you still so and they also do have to sell um, part of the business to I believe Dish. So it, it's. I don't think this was a bad thing okay. for competition. And, and so, so um, there was this super interesting natural experiment, which I wrote about in my newsletter this week. The ruling was a surprise to the market. Sprint stock literally went up by 75% after the ruling came from out. From like $3 to $5. But you know, But the point is that when, when a major piece of news hits the market and the market reacts, you can see whether the market liked it or didn't like it. And specifically, what you can do is you can look at the share prices of AT&T and Verizon. If the merger is good for competition, it should reduce the profits of AT&T and Verizon and their share price should go down. If it's bad for competition, then their share prices would go up because they all get to make more money because there's less competition. And so we get to then look at what happened to the AT&T and Verizon share prices in the wake of this surprising court ruling and kind of nothing. (laughs) <laughs> it was kind of inconclusive. They went up after hours, but then when they went back down again, when the markets opened, and so probably, it, yeah, it's 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 a kind of toss up. So they did they did good there. Yeah. The antitrust <laughs> went the right way, and but I, guess well, I mean, we would know is... that they went the right right way if AT and T and Verizon shares had fallen, and right. they didn't, fall. and they didn't fall, right? Yeah, and then in in the case of just to. Because it seems like in the world of antitrust, we're moving away from being concerned about things like Sprint T-Mobile and moving towards being concerned about things like Google, YouTube or um, Instagram, Facebook. Exactly. Well, and, this- the, and, and the easy thing is like the FTC also just came out and said they were going to re- prevent the merger of shit raises with Harry raises. Oh, yeah. What's up with that? Um, and and that's that's just like good old fashioned antitrust. Right. Like, that is. There, right. there are four razor companies, and you can't just merge three of them together and say that you're going to preserve. But that's literally what they just did with uh, T-Mobile and Sprint. There was four cell phone companies exactly. that merged into three, but, and they were but, totally fine with that. Right. But Harry wasn't going to die. The idea there was that Sprint wasn't really helping consumer competition because okay. it was such a crap cell phone company. Is yeah, yeah, fascinating. And I do wonder if they're kind of if there's a sense of looking back to with the Dollar Shake Club Unilever. I mean, that was obviously a while ago. Mm-hmm. I, I I mean, I was looking at that. I'm like, how can you justify barring Edgewell from buying Harry's and still be okay with Unilever buying Dollar right. Shave Club? You know why? It's because Unilever didn't make razors. Yeah, it wasn't actually anti-competitive in that way. And do you think that the maleness of the FTC makes them? Overly concerned with a razor company. Well, Harry's owns this thing called owns this thing called Flamingo. You know what Harry's also has razors that women can use because called, I use Harry's razors. I don't use the stupid female brand because it, there's nothing gendered about flamingo. an effing razor. But, like but Anna, flamingo razors are pink. Are they pink? How do you know it's your razor if it's not pink? I in fact prefer orange, so I like my Harry's razor. Imagine, can you imagine a world where women use razors that aren't pink? I don't, I don't I, know, man. That's, I don't that's know if I want to live in that world. <laughs> our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? 
That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. It's the return of the Jedi. I can't believe I said that. Um, we Yay. thought we thought that the Jedi thing had been set. That the government said, "I'm going to give this ten billion dollar CIA intelligence contract to." Microsoft, I'm not going to give it to Amazon. Everyone kind of knew that Amazon had the better bid. Everyone kind of knew that the government awarded it to Microsoft just because Donald Trump hates Jeff Bezos. And yet somehow, like, this was just understood as this is life under Trump. And now a court has come along and said, wait, hang on a sec, really? This is an instance where, honestly, I don't think there's anything wrong with giving this to Microsoft. Like, number one, Government contracts are always political, always have been, always will be. Now, this one is more publicly political, and that's not good. But the idea that they're like, oh, no, there are politics and how you give out government contracts, I I kind of roll my eyes at that. And second, you already have Amazon having such a large market share in cloud computing and already being essentially in charge of, I believe, the cloud computing for the CIA. Mm -hmm. So I actually think it makes more sense to have more than one company in there. Yeah, this is one of those confusing times where, like, You just want everyone to lose? Yeah, I definitely didn't want Amazon to win. They already control too much. They have the majority of the cloud, as Anna just said. um, They're huge, and, like, why should they have this $10 billion deal that could actually amount to $40 billion over, Mm -hmm. you know, if they get more and more business? Why not let Microsoft have it? yeah, I mean, and we're just talking about politicization of things, and now we're saying that it's okay to be political. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm saying it, it's confusing. I guess what I'm arguing is that, look, in theory, of course, procurement that none of this should be political whatsoever. But I guess I'm just saying, like, it always is. So, yes, if they can find proof, which with Donald Trump, it's entirely possible they will be able to, where he is saying, like, I have this email that says you can't do this, then that's bad. And then they shouldn't allow it to go forward. I mean, Mattis that has in of, his book that Trump told him, I don't right. want I don't want Amazon to get that contract. Right. But I from what we've seen over the past month, we know that that's not going to do it. Like, wait, wait, that won't that hold won't, up in the courts of law. Right. No, but in I mean, but they can they can they, yeah, can, I mean, they can call Mattis as a witness. Right? That's true. That's true. And so, look, if you can find actual evidence of it, then, yes, of course, you need to say, like, no, we don't allow this. I guess what I'm more just saying is that <laughs> is that I just all government contracts are political. It's always about like who's giving money to who and and like who has connections with here. It's just I don't believe I believe it's maybe in I mean, some think, instances less political than it was in the past, but I don't know. I mean, it certainly is on the level of local government and it you know, it is, certainly is on the level of like international governments, you know, the Europeans will give contracts to Airbus and the Americans will give contracts to Boeing and there's that, 
Anna's right that there's always a political overlay when it comes to government spending. And often it's explicit and written into law that, you know, that if the American government is spending money, they need to spend it with American companies. And and that kind of thing is often, you know, not just implicit, but explicit. Amazon's really having a hard time this year. I mean, there was the whole debacle. Don't, doesn't your heart just bleed? <laughs> well, it does seem like... Bezos, by buying the Washington Post, has kind of like made himself a target in a little bit of a new way with the president and and this Jedi contract losing it. And then a little bit, I mean, even it, I guess the Washington Post angle doesn't really fit with what happened to him in New York. That was more just like. But Uber's. can we can we talk a little bit about Jeff Bezos's midlife crisis because I'd it's love to. kind of Please. amazing. Or he's becoming John Luke Picard. So happy to. He, he just bought that David Geffen house in Los Angeles. He, he bought the old Warner estate in mm-hmm. L.A. for 165 million, thereby beating the record for most expensive property purchase in L.A., which had been held for just a couple of months by <laughs> Lachlan Murdoch. Nice. Um, he reportedly dropped $53 million, which is a record for an Ed Rocher painting at Christie's last November, bought a Kerry James Marshall at the same time. And because I'm the art nerd here, um, he's never been known as an art collector before. Like, you know, you really do. This is super billionaire whimsy when like the first painting you buy is $53 million. Most of us are like, yeah, like, Couple hundred bucks. That's like me spending twenty dollars on a poster at (laughs) Spencer Gifts. Probably actually, probably is. (laughs) But um, but the the super interesting thing to me about him buying um the Ed Rocher and the Kerry James Marshall at Christie's is that Ed Rocher and Kerry James Marshall are both still alive, and there are basically three different ways you can buy art if you're an art collector. One is you can buy art by dead artists who are established in the canon. And then you know, if you're buying from a dead artist, but, but almost by definition, you're buying from someone who owns that art. And so whoever owns the art gets the money and then there's a trade, you get the art, they get the money. Alternatively, with living artists, you can go like, oh, wow, you have, I really like what you do. I like your work. So I'm going to pay you money for your work. And then oh, that money gets split between the artist and the gallery normally and and then the artist you're supporting the artist in doing that and then there's this new thing which is only really it hasn't been around that long um just a few decades really where you can buy the work of living artists on the secondary market and auction houses and stuff like that and so you go along and you buy the ed Rocher at christie's and then all of that money goes to whoever just you know whoever's selling the ed Rocher and, and the artist doesn't see any of it and That's kind of the weird way to collect. It's like, if you're going to collect living artists, don't you want to support the living artists? And yet, Bezos, that's how he's doing it. He's like, I'm going to spend all of this money on art, but I'm not going to spend any money on artists. I don't know. That's just my my little rant. Yeah. No, and I think it's very, very valid. (laughs) And I think it probably also goes to the point that I don't think he cares anything about art whatsoever. I think he's just like, I guess this is what you do. (laughs) I mean, he truly seems to be having some kind of... I don't want to say midlife crisis, but it seems like he got his divorce and now he's just out there. Jeff Bezos on the town buying mansions. He's like out in the town. He sold at four, Hollywood parties. He sold four billion dollars of Amazon stock in one week. <laughs> he's like, I just need some spending money. So he just I'm good. Go- <laughs> some spending money. He's going out. He's got to have the cash. You know, he's got to buy the bottle and he's a busy guy. This it's, is why Bernie so Sanders is going to end up being our president. <laughs> but but, Good. Like, but no. there was this great story, which which we should link to, about 
sort of inside the whole crazy HQ2 fiasco where the whole thing where Jeff Bezos decided that he was going to run around trying to get massive subsidies from cities in North America was basically driven by Elon Musk envy. He was like, Elon Musk yeah. gets all of these subsidies. If he can get the subsidies, why can't I get the subsidies? And you're like, I'll grow up. And then he just took it way over the top. Yeah. But that's how he's run his business all along in a way. Like no competitor. He can have no competitor. He buys them and pushes them out of business. He dominates everything. Like, I mean, it is interesting. Like if you've like read biographies of previous entrepreneurs in earlier eras, I mean, he fits the model mm. so much, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, which probably means at some point he is going to run into an antitrust and he is there are going to be real consequences because he doesn't seem to have anything inside of him that knows when to stop. I mean, I think he used to have a wife. <laughs> and may- maybe she was. Yeah, I mean, maybe <laughs> that explains it. You know, maybe she was like, hey, Jeff. I mean, she clearly you, was you, holding him back from something. We already have a hundred billion dollars. We don't need another hundred billion dollars. He's like, you are cramping my style. I need to trade you in for someone else. <laughs> there was a piece in the Times. I think I talked about this a bunch a few weeks ago um, that talked about like married Bezos would like go online to make reservations at restaurants. <laughs> but like single Bezos would like never do that because that's so cheesy. Married Bezos had hair. Married Bezos had hair. <laughs> married Bezos didn't have like those hulking swole. Is that what they call it? Yeah. Swole arms, um, which nothing wrong with that. Um yeah, it's just interesting contrast, a little social experiment in front of our eyes. How about a numbers round? I'll start for change. $154, which is the new price of a single ticket to Disneyland. If you want to go to Disneyland for the day, it will cost you 154 bucks. What does that get you? It gets you into the park. On a, on a peak day, and then I guess that includes... I have to admit, I haven't done the Disneyland thing in a while. But yeah, I think it gets you on the rise, but you have to queue up. Yeah. I think you have to pay extra to, like, beat the line. Is that a lot? It seems I reasonable imagine. to me. Disneyland's great, right? I, I don't have kids. I don't know, what, <laughs> I, I don't know what, what's cheap or expensive. My number is $360,000 per week. That is the cost if you are going to charter Daniel Loeb's yacht. Oh, three hundred and sixty. That's like that's much less than a million dollars. Yeah. So the, I mean, like, yeah, I know million dollar a week yachts. Like three sixty. That's like you get two thirds off the price of a million dollar. Not so bad. Yacht. The reason we actually kind of know this is because there's a bit of a scandal because someone who chartered it apparently was putting there. They were in a UNESCO World Heritage site in this in Belize, this um, coral, and they actually had the anchor in the coral Aww. wrapped around it. Oh no! And so yeah, that's that's awful. My number is really big it is one trillion wait wait wait. hang oh, on a sec wait, wait like, like, can you, can, i just want to follow up on this one question for anna so <laughs> anna when you say the person who chartered it like correct me if i'm wrong here but when you charter a boat it comes with the captain and yes. the crew yes. so it's dan Loeb's captain who that did this i don't think we can blame the person who chartered it that is true yeah okay emily my number is large it is one trillion. It is a number I can't even conceptualize that well in my it's brain. It's really hard to, un- to conceptualize one trillion. It's one trillion. That is the number of trees that oh, President Trump... Oh, the trillion trees. Yeah, Donald's. he was into that in Davos, wasn't he? Yes, he said he would plant a trillion trees to help the environment. And there was um, a piece in the Times about this that Mark Benioff, the founder and CEO of Salesforce, it was kind of like 
his doing. He basically, he said, I'm going to get Trump to support this. I think he'll support it. Is this this Davos thing? They were hanging out in the Hotel Europe together? Yeah. And he, he, well, Benioff went through Kushner to do it. And um, he said, trees are the ultimate bipartisan issue. (laughs) Everyone is (laughs) pro-tree. I don't know. (laughs) I agree. I'm. Pro- you're not pro. No, no. I'm pro. Pro. But, but, but I know of people who are not pro. I mean, there is. There was that famous quote from Ronald Reagan where he said, "Once you've seen one tree, you've seen them all." I mean, I it's guess now we'll true. see a tree more. <laughs> I mean, I'm anti-tree in the perimeter of my house because I don't want them to fall on my house. But apparently, planting more trees is really good for the environment. It's a form of carbon capture. It would take like a century for the trees to actually start doing the carbon capture. So Trump would actually have to do other things besides plant the trees. But like, I'll take what I can get right now. And I'm I, just going to come out. Not, I'm not cynical. About I'm just going to come out and say that like mathematically, it's impossible <laughs> to reach a trillion trees. How like it's just not exactly. But like, just, just think about <laughs> it. I mean, like, like, should we do a quick back of the envelope calculation? <laughs> no, I want to feel good about the tree thing. But fine, go ahead. This, uh, this, let, is, let, this, no, is, no. this sounds like one of like the interview questions you get at like Goldman Sachs. Yes, like, yeah. it does. All right, right. Is it, is it possible to calculate? But so I'm just going to. I'm just going to. I'm, I'm just going to. Let's let's assume you're planting one tree a second, okay? And I'm just going to get Siri up. This is pretty quick if you've ever planted a tree before. Yeah, you, don't you just scatter some seeds? Anyway, but let's... No, you have to plant it. You need to <laughs> you build a hole. Any. Siri, how many years is one trillion seconds? That would be 31,688.74 years. So, at one tree a second, it would take 30,000 years to plant a trillion trees. Why are you saying one tree trees. a second? It could be but a you would have more than one person. Yeah, you would have... A, <laughs> right? Across if the you, globe. It could so, be like 20 million trees a second. Ask Siri that. <laughs> <laughs> On, okay, if 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 anyone has any um, idea whether it's remotely realistic that anyone will ever be able to plant a trillion trees, please write in on slate money at slate dot com, and we will um, read out the best answers. I'm next so week. unhappy now. <laughs> um, Ruin everything. I'm just I'm just gonna I'm I'm here to dash your dreams, Thank Emily. <laughs> blame Siri. <laughs> I, I and and yeah, yeah I, will, I do blame I will slap Siri. Siri. Since when is Siri so good at answering? Every time we ask her a question at home, she's just like, "Let me Google that for you." <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, Emily, for your trillion number, and thanks, Anna, for coming on. Thanks, Jasmine, for producing. Thanks, all of you lovely people for listening. Keep those emails about how big a trillion is and everything else coming on Slate Money at Slate.com and we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.